Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think a certain way. We want to give everybody a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that, even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So, we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Alright, we are back to talk more Fairness Doctrine this week. Last time we covered the basics, what the rule was designed to do, where it came from, and whether or not it actually accomplished what it was supposed to. This week, we're bringing you the good stuff. That's right. Last week, after we blasted you with like 45 minutes on the history of the Fairness Doctrine, we promised we'd give you some drama, some controversy. And talk about just what made this subject a hot-button partisan issue. After all, the rule enjoyed significant support on both sides of the political aisle, even as it was being neutered by the FCC. <laughs> so how did, how did conversation about this policy devolve into a polarized partisan argument? Well, there are some scholars that believe that there is one case, well, one man to be exact, that heralded the division of opinion on this topic down party lines. And that man is the Reverend Carl D. McIntyre, and his radio station, WXUR, out of Media, Pennsylvania, is the only radio or television station in American history to be denied a broadcasting license renewal solely on the basis of fairness doctrine violations. As part of his doctoral thesis work at Pennsylvania State University, uh, Patrick Farabaugh tells the story of how McIntyre's crusade against the Fairness Doctrine may have contributed to the rule's demise and the strong stance that many conservatives took against the policy. A little bit of background here. Reverend McIntyre was an ultra-fundamentalist evangelical preacher. Uh, he got his first taste of radio in 1936 when WPEN out of Philadelphia began broadcasting his Sunday sermons. And that relationship continued for about nine years until kind of under the guise of these new fairness ideas, the radio station changed its policy concerning religious programming in an effort to give listeners a more diverse spectrum of religious voices. McIntyre, in partnership with other local religious leaders, filed a complaint with the FCC alleging that WPEN was violating their freedom of religious expression with their new policy. The FCC took no action against the station, but they did take a firm position as prime opponent for one Reverend Carl McIntyre. I just want to say, uh, 
We are less than five minutes into this week's episode and already talking about a like massive fight between the United States government and the church. <laughs> like, uh, okay, but we like, rolled right gonna, into this one. <laughs> I got sucked into this one. I I scanned over a hundred pages of this dude's doctoral dissertation. No joke. This is one of the fascinating, most fascinating stories you will never hear about anywhere else. Really, it's. Crazy. And the parallels with today's uh, culture politically, they're just, they're uncanny. It's absolutely shocking. So yeah, we're five minutes in and it's ultra fundamentalist against the government. But you'll quickly see that it's not all of the church against the government. Right, it's right, right. mostly just this dude. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's one guy. I'm actually, so obviously this was the part that you prepared and I didn't. So I'm super excited about <laughs> about this. Um, anyway, so back to the story. In, ni- in 1955, McIntyre debuted his 30-minute talk radio program called the 20th Century Reformation Hour using time purchased from Reverend John M. Norris, owner of the Red Lion Broadcasting Group's WGCB-AM station, which would soon come to its own fame as part of a case central to the constitutionality of the Fairness Doctrine. You heard us talk about the Red Lion case last week a little bit. Um, The show was actually well-received, and by 1958, it was airing on 13 stations throughout the Northeast. By 1964 the peak of his popularity among evangelical audiences, McIntyre could be heard daily on 610 stations and boasted an audience of more than 10 million listeners. Someday. Someday, Robin. Like, if this dude can accomplish that in 1964. (laughs) We have the entire internet. We, hey, for the, like, 20 of you faithful listeners who come back every week, we are mm-hmm. grateful. We need so you. great. You are like 10 million to us. Exactly. But if you could all recruit like, you know, 50,000 people to listen as well, that would be awesome. Yeah. Just you know. Throwing it out there. Uh, so the show also brought in more than $3 million in contributions that year. Right? $3 million dollars in 1964. <laughs> Sorry. In 1964, uh, that same year, the Anti-Defamation League filed the first FCC complaint against McIntyre's show, claiming that it was a, quote, medium for spreading racial and religious discord. Oh, no. What? A fundamentalist <laughs> religious show spreading discord? <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. And several stations... Uh, Several stations dropped the program as a result, citing increasing criticism and fear of repercussions from the FCC. One station owner, in response to a listener letter, said that the Federal Communications Commission has put the broadcaster in a most awkward position of having to give equal time to groups having opposing viewpoints to those of another group which purchases time for the presentation of their ideas in the case of controversial issues. It has the effect of putting the broadcaster right in the middle of a big squeeze. That was a quote. Yeah, it's a good quote. I mean, he basically summed up the fairness doctrine very simply for us. (laughs) That's the rest of the show right there, guys. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) 
As stations continued to drop the show from their broadcast lineups, McIntyre grew vocal in his blame toward the FCC for the loss of his platform and also probably his money. Uh, He asked his listeners to write letters to the FCC in protest, and oh boy, did they. The FCC received more than 25,000 complaints from his listeners. And then when the FCC singled out McIntyre's show in a memo to station owners, basically telling them that they had the right to request in advance um, transcripts of what he was going to say on the radio, his vitriol grew stronger. And he railed against the organization, accusing them of violating his constitutional rights and calling for a full investigation by Congress into the overreach of the agency, which he said was turning into the fourth branch of government. Okay. Man, I, I, I'm based on that one statement alone, I already know the type of preacher this guy was. Like, I know every <laughs> oh, yeah. sermon that guy gave. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> as the summer of 1964 continued, so did the tug of war between McIntyre and his conservative base and the FCC. And a new player, Samuel Brightman, which is a real name, but it sounds like biblically fake to me. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, my name's Lucifer Morningstar, and this is my brother, Samuel Brightman. Um, Anyway. (laughs) A new player, Samuel Brightman, deputy chairman of public affairs for the DNC, entered the ring addressing broadcasters of the 20th Century Reformation Hour directly and requesting time on each to address the attacks made against him, the committee, and its policies. And oh, theirs was an epic feud. Seriously. It, like Robin was saying, it it so closely rivals the shenanigans we see in modern politics that it is kind of scary. Take some time to go read some of Dr. Farabaugh's dissertation. I have already begun to <laughs> put it aside for my own reading because we have our links here. I'm very interested in it. The more things change, the more they stay the same is one of the one of the things I'm taking from this. Oh, yeah. I mean, the jockeying was like seriously epic. Like, uh Brightman would write letters to all of the stations that carried the 20th Century Reformation Hour and demand that they give him time. And then McIntyre would write letters back to Brightman on behalf of all of the stations. And like, it just was such drama. They could make a reality TV show out of it. Seriously, it was insane. But again, as this stuff happened, more stations removed McIntyre from their lineups, citing the Fairness Doctrine and a refusal to uh, broadcast a defense of liberalism. Basically, if they had to give time to people with a liberal perspective, they were not going to air the show. Um, and then, of course, fear of reprisal from the FCC as their reasoning for uh, for dropping the station. One station manager even said in a letter to McIntyre, if a solution to the problem presented by the Fairness Doctrine is worked out, I would like to resume your program. <laughs> Uh, this is crazy to me. I'm sorry. It is. In fall 1964, the Faith Theological Seminary, for which McIntyre served as president of the board of directors, purchased controlling interest in WXUR in Media, Pennsylvania, and applied for a transfer of broadcasting license. 
While the first letters the FCC received concerning the transfer application were in opposition, McIntyre soon rallied his support base to send letters urging the FCC to allow the transfer. And then in 1965, despite a serious question, that's a quote, raised by the FCC commissioner that McIntyre and WXUR would place his personal virtues above the station's public interest obligations, the license transfer was indeed granted. McIntyre did, after all, promise to operate in the public interest rather than his own private purposes. They even promised a weekly interfaith dialogue show as part of the application. Except that they didn't keep that promise. I'm shocked. I'm so <laughs> I shocked. Know, right? As soon as the Reformation Hour began broadcasting again, McIntyre immediately took up his campaign against the FCC and the Fairness Doctrine. They made absolutely no good faith efforts to bring in commentators of other faiths or to present more than one side of any story as part of their programming. And surprisingly enough, the locals revolted. They did not want to hear McIntyre and his co-broadcasters and all of the terrible things that they were saying. Um, And they demanded change on both a local and a state level. Eventually, a resolution was passed in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives asking the FCC to investigate WXUR for failure to comply with the Fairness Doctrine and also singling out McIntyre's programming specifically. It's crazy to me that they, I, ah, sorry, this whole story is just like a replay, (laughs) except for everything I'm thinking of is the replay of this story, but you know, this is my first time hearing of it. So it, uh, it's just so weird. Anyway, this resolution, um, that the Pennsylvania house of representatives sent to the FCC, uh, it read the views which the Reverend McIntyre expounds are those which we now equate with the word extremism. The danger of such views to our country is self-evident. That such views are rejected by a majority of our citizens was demonstrated by the election returns in November 1964. This is so crazy. I like literally the quotes you could take them out of this dissertation, out of history, and put them in any time in the last year, and they would yeah. fit. They're perfectly applicable. It's absolutely insane to me. But then again, it's not. Right? Like, it's crazy. But it's not that crazy. But it's totally crazy. Anyway. New Jersey soon followed suit with its own resolution. But throughout this whole time, McIntyre just doubled down publicly, loudly on his stance that government censorship through the FCC and religious persecution, he literally used the word religious persecution from Pennsylvania Democrats were to blame for all of the pushback against the fundamentalist, racist, and generally otherwise appalling content that aired during his shows and other shows that he brought in on the same station. This is not, this was not something that was uh, necessarily unique to him. He had completely non-religious programming, um, in which the hosts did very much the same thing. They would invite callers to call in and discuss things and then berate them, shut them down, and hang up on them, all on the air. Or um, they would come on and they would just rail against 
things like uh, the war on poverty and welfare um, as a slippery slope toward a communist state, right? This was not unusual for these stations. Um, but still, it was not, the pushback was, could not possibly have been because of the programming. It absolutely had to be religious persecution from the Democrats. Of course. Uh, this is the the proto-Alex Jones, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, like, he wrote the playbook. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. Um, but despite protestations from, <laughs> from the good <laughs> reverend, uh, the FCC did investigate, and it held a hearing regarding the license renewal for WXUR. After nine months of review, an FCC examiner determined that WXUR was, in fact, serving the public interest by providing the only source of fundamentalist perspective in the area. However, (laughs) that decision was appealed and overturned in July 1970, and WXUR lost its federal broadcasting license. Womp. And then literally the world exploded. Yep. America Um, disintegrated. Yeah. The ire sparked by that decision just radiated throughout the conservative Christian media, which, of course, even though he had spent years and years attacking them for being far too liberal, uh, rallied around McIntyre to make the case that he had been singled out and censored for his conservative beliefs. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But also it raised questions among more progressive organizations like the ACLU about the potential limits of government reach in the context of speech. So, yeah, all of the conservatives were like, hey, you can't do that, that's terrible. And then the liberals were also like, "Mm, we should probably be a little bit careful. It's, it's, as they should have been, as you should be. Because you always have to consider if the thing that you have done that you feel is right and just were to be turned around on you, how how that would make you feel. And if it feels like, oh, this is ridiculously unfair, maybe a different approach should be taken in the first place. Right. You know, that said, golden rule and all that. Yeah, yeah. That said, there are also like limitations to this. And we we've right. talked about them. You know, we talked about him when it came to extremism and and freedom of speech in our episode a few weeks back. Just going to do the great podcasting thing and plug that episode. If you haven't uh, listened to it yet, go back and listen to our discussion on uh, the tolerance paradox. I really feel uh, like it's that's some of our best work. Yeah. Three or four, three or four episodes there. Really good. Um, We say about our own product, Uh, (laughs) but there, there is a line where you I, th- I think it is a fair thing to do, even if it is a limitation of a freedom, to limit certain types of speech. Nobody would want ISIS in our streets making, like, converting people. That would right. obviously be limited. Um, and similarly, I think a, a fundamentalist uh, media host like this guy who was, I haven't heard directly any of his his uh, <laughs> ministrations from the altar. But uh, I have a feeling they were pretty divisive, probably called for a lot of really terrible racist things. Um, 
pretty much tears down society from the ground up. Do we really want to allow that? I don't know. Regardless, McIntyre continued his escapades with offshore radio stations and court injunctions. He railed against the unfairness of the fairness doctrine to conservative voices as long as anyone would listen. And then as the power power balance is what I was going to say, as the balance of power on the FCC and in government shifted more conservative with President Reagan, that rallying cry grew louder and louder until the rule eventually met its demise. And that, dear listeners, is the story of how the Fairness Doctrine became a weapon of partisan politics. Bum, bum, bum. And also just like the prototype for just about every, every debate, every clash that we have as a society that's divided along cultural identities, right? Yeah. It's, I, you could take out, you know, fundamentalist and sub in just about any other group and take out the FCC and sub in any other group or not even the FCC, but just like literally everybody else that's not the fundamentalist group. Right, in this anybody case. who attempts to place some sort of limits on anybody else. Right, period. and it's the, it's the same playbook over and over and over again. Um, the same divisions, the same attacks, the same persecution complex, uh, the victim mentality right here. Right. So it, yeah. it's, in, it just, it, it blows my mind that people can't see the impact of what they are saying, the effects of what they're saying. And if not that they can't see it, but they don't comprehend it. And when they don't comprehend it, they cry foul whenever it's limited because they don't understand that what they are doing is hurting people. Right. Yeah, it's it's the law of unintended consequences, right? And it that really applies to so many of the things that we talk about that on the surface, on the top, feel like a, like a very little effort required decision making, right? It's, yeah. it's a no-brainer to use a nice to early 2000s term. No doy. No doy. But then when you really consider those things and what the downstream effects could logically be, you have to take a few minutes to consider whether or not that's something that we should actually consider limiting if we or whether we we should just leave it completely unchecked. Um, and we've talked several times about the unintended effects of the fairness doctrine in the last episode ensuring that every side of a matter of public importance had airtime on any given radio station. I mean, put it another way, no radio station could legally refuse to air an argument for, against, or otherwise about any given topic of public importance. At its core, the thought process was that humans, as a rule, you and me and everybody else listening to this, we are given to valuing and pushing certain ideas above others. We all do it. Even those of us who are like, I'm going to keep an open mind. I'm going to be fair. I'm going to listen to all of the, the arguments. Like we all have this inherent favoring of one thing over the other. Some people like cats more than they like dogs or hot dogs more than they like hamburgers or the soul sucking, depressing midsummer heat to the glorious, refreshing, invigorating snap of winter air. Fight me. I hate being hot. I hate it. Winter I'm not going to fight you because I also like winter better. 
Okay, listener who disagreed with us, fight us. Fight don't, us. Don't both actually us. fight us. But don't. do mm-hmm. it. Bring it. Please don't. Bring it. But if you could manage to fight both of us at the same time, even though we're in different geographical locations, you're probably a superhero of some sort, and we don't want to fight you anyway. That's true. That's true. Don't fight us. Exactly. All right. Glad we established that. Sometimes our preferences are as benign as preferring the winter to the summer. Sometimes, however, our preferences and our beliefs are not so benign. And I think we've seen it illustrated only too vividly in recent years. But in matters that people believe to go beyond personal preference and stretch into the very moral foundations of society. In these matters, people tend to abandon things like tolerance and reason and civility. How many religious crusades and jihads have there been? How many riots because some politician did something that half their constituents didn't like? How many coups or coup attempts? When we are faced with these deeply rooted beliefs, and specifically when those beliefs are being challenged, even by hearing another opinion, right? We as a whole, we, we tend to get a little ugly. Sometimes we get a lot ugly. (laughs) Yeah, we do. You know? And so in order to head off this eventuality and probably less altruistically to prevent threats to the government from things like extremist radio, why not enact a new law that requires there to be equal coverage of all of the sides when an important issue is being discussed? With facts from all sides in hand, a discerning American would be able to come to a sensible and reasonable conclusion, and the chances of a less-than-sensible American becoming radicalized in some way are reduced. Side note, we're not saying that this is the specific reasoning why this law was enacted, and we're taking some liberty in translating the ideas into more modern terminology and reading into the logic a little bit. Radicalization wasn't quite the trigger word in the 1930s as it was now. Um, We did hear some talk of extremism, you know, when we were talking about uh, Reverend McIntyre, but it just wasn't quite that like that buzzword that we hear (laughs) all the time now. But the implication is there in a lot of the writing about the fairness doctrine. And this is where we run into the most powerful law in politics. Like we were talking about earlier, it's the law of unintended consequences. The number of times a law has backfired and hurt those that it was ostensibly meant to help, or maybe worse, done the exact opposite of what it was meant to do, is likely inestimable. There's a famous anecdote, and it tells the story about when the British ruled in Delhi, India. As the story goes, the British were terrified of the large amount of venomous snakes in the area. Uh, cobras. In order to deal with this problem, the British put a bounty on the cobras, paying for each dead snake brought to them. Well, the residents of Delhi recognized uh, the potential of that setup uh, pretty quickly, and they began breeding cobras to bring them in for the bounty. After the British discovered the scheme, they ended the bounty program, but it was a little too late Suddenly, all of these breeders had uh, just tons of snakes and and faced with this like handful of snakes and no use for them. They did what anybody with a bucket full of venomous snakes would do. They got rid of them. 
they released them right back into the wild. And suddenly there were even more cobras than before the bounty program began. And that is where we get one of the strangest stories of my childhood, the story of Ricky Tiki Tabby, who was a, I think he was a weasel. He was a mongoose. Was owned by a family in order to eat cobras on their yep. property in India. Yep. Yeah, Ricky Tiki Tabby <laughs> But if you is want awesome. a more recent story, uh, you can look no further than sex education, right? Whenever abstinence-only education is the sole method of preventing teenage pregnancies in some case, states, the teen pregnancy rate goes up. For every dollar per pupil increase in funding for abstinence-only education, the teen birth rate rose by 0.30 per 1,000 in conservative states compared with moderate states. And, I mean, there are similar stories in various places and times. Uh, interestingly, like gun buyback programs may lead to a similar effect if they're implemented without taking the possibility of people breeding quote-unquote guns into consideration and in fact you see it um people will make i mean you can manufacture a firearm with a uh, plumbing pipe and a nail and a two by four that it will it will technically function as a firearm and when you're getting 200 dollars a pop for materials that cost you like 10 bucks to build (laughs) i mean and it happens you it, it actually i've seen it happen um just because a law is good on the surface, it doesn't mean that the effects of that law will be good. The common factor in every case of unintended consequences is a failure to consider the realities of human nature. People who want money are going to look for ways to make money, especially if that money is easy. Guys, I got news for you. Listen, come here, sit down, look at me, look at me. Teenagers are gonna have sex. Gasp. Stop clutching your pearls. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. It doesn't matter if you teach them the safe way to have sex or not. They're gonna figure it out. They're literally made to do that. Like, of course they're gonna figure it out. They're just a bucket of hormones all wrapped up and in an inability to deal with it. It's, it's going to happen. No common sense. Nothing. Impaired decision-making capabilities. It's like we're talking about politicians, but we're talking about teenagers. It, it, <laughs> arguably, <laughs> politicians are worse. <laughs> Oh, but And so we come to the fairness doctrine. When it was enacted, it failed to take into account human nature, or more precisely, the risk-averse nature of businesses. There were a couple of ways that a broadcaster could run afoul of the fairness doctrine. They could either fail to cover a matter of public importance entirely, or fail to provide airtime to all sides of the issue. In theory, this would ensure not only that a broadcaster covered the next important thing, but also that they covered it fairly. However, after it was implemented, broadcasters were most often dinged for violations by failing to provide all valid opposing viewpoints airtime on a given issue. They were very infrequently cited for failing to cover an important issue at all. So remember that violations could lead to a number of outcomes. 
from forcing the station to allow other sides equal airtime to revocation of a broadcast license entirely. No matter the punishment, though, it always meant one thing, and that was reduced profits. Now, I'm not sure what the business environment in the 1930s was like, but I do know that the bottom dollar was the final authority on whether or not that business would do something. Eventually, broadcasters caught on that they were more likely to be punished for inadequate coverage than for not covering something at all, just for staying silent about it. So when they are faced with this dilemma, they did what any business would. They eliminated the risk. If they could get in trouble for failing to cover all sides, the simple answer was just don't cover any sides. Well, why didn't they just ensure that they had covered the issue then? It was legally their responsibility, after all. They applied for these licenses. And while that's true, stations faced litigation even when they had met their obligations because, according to the commission assigned to reviewing the Fairness Doctrine, the process of review necessarily involved a vague standard, the application and meaning of which is hard to predict. Long story short... It kind of depends on who's looking. Yeah. And then, and then even if they had met their obligation, or it was determined that they had, and they decided to fight an accusation that they had not, they faced another expense, which was the cost of defending the station against second guessing from the government. And that was just if it went to the FCC. That costs money. If the Kate if the case goes to court, that's an even further expense. And then if word gets out that they had violated the fairness doctrine, then they may face even further costs in the form of reduced listenership from an audience that feels as if their trust were betrayed. This was the chain of logic that the Federal Communications Commission found in 1985 through 1987 in the course of their investigations. In 1987, the FCC found well over 60 reported instances in which the Fairness Doctrine inhibited broadcasters' coverage of controversial issues. This inhibition came in many forms, from striking individual topics from coverage, like issues such as the nuclear arms race, religious cults, or municipal salaries, to entire policies refusing acceptance of nationally produced programming that covered controversial topics, like Reverend McIntyre's program. Put simply, the Fairness Doctrine disincentivized broadcasters taking any sort of risk in programming and instead kind of forced them into a sort of homogeneic, safe boundary of popular beliefs and things that were culturally accepted. The farther away any given topic was from quote-unquote mainstream, the less likely it was to receive airtime from a broadcaster. And so there was a, a trend towards this sort of bland, safe content. And you can still see the legacy of that, even though, even though we don't have the Fairness Doctrine anymore. You still hear that on your NPR-affiliated stations, right? It's that fairly mainstream only slightly skews to one side or the other. We're going to talk about mostly the most acceptable mainstream topics that there are out there. 
that's that is the legacy of something like this versus when you venture onto the internet or into satellite radio and you have opinions of every kind from every different side with which to inform your decisions. Right. Um, we do want to take a minute here to address a very persistent claim around the fairness doctrine, uh, or more importantly, the revocation of the fairness doctrine. Among some circles, there is this belief that ending the fairness doctrine is what gave birth to conservative talk radio. Uh, you know the types, the Sean Hannity's, the Mark Levin's, the Brian Kilmeade's, Rush Limbaugh. This argument actually focuses pretty exclusively on Rush Limbaugh and the research that we found. Um, and so the argument is that if the fairness doctrine had remained in effect, Rush Limbaugh would not have been able to have a radio station format that was solely focused on conservative audiences, since he would have been obligated to provide a balancing counterpoint. There's a correlation about when Limbaugh, you know, began to ascend and when the fairness doctrine ended. Uh, but Andrew Schwartzman of the Media Access Project disagrees with this theory. And I got to say, I think he makes a compelling argument. It's tempting, it is tempting to correlate the birth of conservative talk shows with the end of the fairness doctrine, since they seem to happen one right after the other. But the majority reason for this explosion in the popularity of conservative talk radio, according to Schwartzman, was something a little more capitalistic. <laughs> and that was just the cost of owning a station or an affiliate. National syndication was taking off. Mm -hmm. So instead of developing local talent, radio stations were beginning to use syndicated programming, meaning that they could just, they could just bring in somebody who had already proven themselves for relatively cheap when compared to developing an entire program and personality whole cloth in the area. And it just so happens that due to the, the variables and the environment around radio, a large portion of these nationally successful voices were conservative talk hosts like Limbaugh. Right. I mean, it's possible that the end of the Fairness Doctrine allowed Limbaugh to establish himself, thus enabling his national presence. But to say that it was the only thing holding him back ignores the greater context of what was happening in the radio world during the 1980s. And we only point that out to highlight the tricky nature of determining causation. This is a great example of how correlation and causation are not always the same. For whatever reason, conservative talk radio remains excessively popular when compared to other types of content. In fact, in 2019, which is the most recent accounting that we could find, six out of the top 10 national radio shows were conservative. Which I know it's five out of the top 10, at least now, because oh, one of those guys kicked the bucket uh, famously. Um. And <laughs> I'm just saying, when we go out, right. we're going to have people who don't like us. I get that. We get that. Especially because right. we talk about these things that are like, complicated and divisive and people don't like thinking about them a whole lot but i really don't think we're gonna have anybody like literally dancing in the streets over it like if we have anybody that's not our immediate family even noticing it i will consider that a rather right. well-lived life if the world <laughs> knows enough to miss us when we're gone that i'll take it yeah 
but uh yeah that was um i haven't listened to public radio in quite a long time so like i hadn't heard any of his more more recent uh appearances (laughs) but uh you know you don't have to look very far to find some horrendously racist thing that he said that he would then hide behind some stupid phrase like it's just facts or something crazy like that right i I haven't listened to him but he he was never like he was never uh one of those that that like was overt in that way it was always very much like it just makes sense just think about it that sort of terrible terrible statement ben shapiro bullshit statistics yeah stuff Um, not that i have opinions about that no ben shapiro sucks uh, fight me, not you. Ben Shapiro, let's go. Yeah. I'll take you on. Uh, <laughs> I'd pay to see that fight. I would pay money. Listen, violence is not the answer. If Ben Shapiro ever wants to come on the show and have a, a, a conversation with us, we will gladly have him on and we can all talk like adults. And then can we fight him? No, Robin practicing my jujitsu we are adults here i we know and sometimes adults need to, to do some ass kicking <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean you're not wrong exactly exactly okay so this but this brings us back around to the the big question the question that is out there all over the internet and was in 1989 and 2007 and 2009 and 2011 and 2019 should we bring back the fairness doctrine or some version of it in some form or another? I want to know your thoughts since I ruminated on it for like five minutes at the end of last week's episode. Um, and you were like, I'm just going to save my thoughts for next week. Okay, fine. I know. Bring and it. I've been pondering. I've been pondering. And I like my brain goes back and forth, back and forth. And there is that deep idealistic core deep inside me. That says, yes, there should be something. Somebody should be held to account for the truth, um, for mm-hmm. the factual nature of what is presented. Not even just both opinions, but um, but some accounting for fact in, in media reporting and in news outlets and in broadcast outlets. Especially those that take up public space that you don't have to pay to access. Um, but in my heart of hearts, I know that that is not anything we can ever regulate well. That's not something we'll ever be able to do in a way that does not cause unintended harm. Right. Yeah, I was I was thinking about it too this past uh, past week. And it's just in order to do something like that, you would have to you would have to define like every possible outcome, every possible avenue that it could take, every possible reaction that could happen. So you you knew, right, how to react in any given circumstance. I don't know if I'm being clear. Um, I guess it would start with like, you couldn't, the original law as it was written was like, you know, anything that's of public importance, You'd have to define what is of public importance. What does that mean? Right. Um, what is a, a valid, quote unquote, valid side on that? How would you define what is valid? How would you measure what is valid? How would you measure 
whether or not somebody had actually done, you know, their legal duties and addressed all sides of it. Like, would it be by time, by word count, by number of syllables presented in the argument? Like, there's just no good answer for it. Yeah. I mean, we in the time since the Fairness Doctrine was discarded in 1987, like we've had entire congressional hearings on the definition of the word is. Can you imagine the kind of bureaucracy that it would take to make any kind of functional legislation or guideline? I mean, do I do I think that that there is some value to each news outlet, to each organization having their own their own central doctrine of fairness, their own commitment like you and I do to presenting as much of both sides as they possibly can. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's just good journalistic ethics. Um, but I, d- I just don't know that there's that there's any way that it could ever be governmentally legislated. I mean, we're having a difficult enough time with Section 230 and the platform versus publisher conversation with social media right now that can you imagine extending that out to even all of broadcast radio or broadcast radio and news? And then do you extend it to cable news or internet news? We can't even handle Facebook. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that's so fascinating about living in this moment in time, even as it is incredibly frustrating, is that we are culturally, we're navigating this minefield together. We've seen the I would posit close, close to the worst that can happen when people get stuck in their echo chambers and only allow themselves to listen to the things that they agree with that that fulfill their internal biases. Um, And, you know, clearly January 6th could have gone worse. But the, the... ethical warping that has taken place amongst that group is incredible Mm -hmm. and indicative of how dangerous it is for any single organization to 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 only adhere to one side because people will only listen to the organizations that they agree with and they won't seek out these contradictory opinions because it's uncomfortable it's so hard it i mean it takes a level of emotional maturity to be able to do that and a lot of people just don't want to because you know they're they're at the very basic level it's painful and we naturally maximize our comfort (laughs) and minimize the pain that we encounter in life i mean Um, i just think about the the revulsion that that we had trying to find sources this week and the number of times we were like oh I don't want to read that. It just, you yeah. get that gut check revulsion and you don't want to engage with it. Yeah. I, I spent more than a few hours on the Cato Institute website <laughs> researching this, which is just like, uh, but I mean, the thing is, and the thing that I will say is that there were some good points in there. If you could sift through the, the, the obvious partisan bias in it which I think is applicable to just about any um, any station. Like there will be 
at its core some seed of a good point. Um, now, whether or not that seed is acknowledged and drawn forth, right. or whether it's completely buried in favor of a of a narrative that's trying to be sold, is a whole different story, you know. But you can find diamonds in the dirt. But I just, we don't, we are not equipped as a society. We don't have the education, I don't think. We don't value the education. And I don't mean like college education or anything like that. I mean just like the the sort of like common sense, be incredulous as you read things, mm-hmm. you know, or be less credulous um, as you read things. Education, the, 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 uh, the thing that our parents told us all the time, which is like, don't trust everything that you read, you know, we, nobody... Nobody applies that logic when they're reading something that they like. Right. So, uh, and, yeah. And so it just like, I don't know. Because feel, and we do have to say that, like, yes, there is this monolith that is conservative talk radio. But also when you venture into different parts of the Internet, there are significant networks of progressive and liberal and libertarian and a whole host of other ideological perspectives out there that do also have their own representative groupings. You can find it for sure. I just don't think, I think the imbalance comes in the size of those networks and the readable, readily available access to those networks. Absolutely. Um, Because there is, I, I say this all the time and it ticks people off, but like CNN is not the opposite of Fox. MSNBC is not the opposite of Fox. Right. Fox has a very specific agenda, a very specific reason that it exists that you can like look at the comments of the founders and understand why Fox is. Mm -hmm. And there's no, as far as I can tell, there's no equal opposite to that. Right. Unless it's like literally Rachel Maddow herself, who is on a <laughs> just warpath. her, at just her, desk. her, yeah. Man, she's a, she's she's a powerhouse. She's a she's a firebrand, but whoosh, there's a lot there too. Yeah. Anyway, this the only idea that I could come up with that had any sort of potential workability that I that that I didn't like hate was that you couldn't take a punitive measure against the station that didn't meet a fairness doctrine or a media outlet, right? You couldn't make it punitive. You could only incentivize meeting the standard. Right. So if there were a, some sort of benefit, maybe a monetary benefit, maybe a, uh, an ability to access certain airwaves or channels or be broadcast on public stations, Mm-hmm. you know, to broaden your audience, uh, if you met certain fairness requirements, certain reporting requirements, I could see that incentive working, but right. there would be no punishment for people who didn't do it. Yeah. You could almost take the same approach as some um, states are doing with um, corporate board representation, where the requirement is that you publish the makeup your, of your corporate board every year and you have to publish it out and tell everybody that you have 11 white men and one white woman on your corporate board um, in the in, in the interest of diversity disclosure and then 
kind of what the public chooses to do with you is up to them at that point. Right. Incentivize the behavior that you want, the diversity, right? Don't punish, like don't, the government yeah. shouldn't be the one who punishes the behavior that exactly. they don't want. I can support stuff like that. Um, that isn't to say that there isn't a time and place for, you know, punitive steps. Uh, and I don't think the entirety of government should function off that same model. But I think there are right. are places for that, and this might be such a place. I don't Agreed. Know. The listeners could potentially tell us what they think about such a thing. You How know? could they do that? Well, I'm glad you asked, Robin. They could do that by contacting us in any number of ways. We are on several social medias, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, and this hot new thing called Twitter. And you can find us on all, all of those. <laughs> I couldn't keep a straight face. I'm not that old. Uh, you can find us on all of our social media platforms uh, just by searching Fireside Breakdowns. As far as we can tell, we're the only people with that name. Because yeah. Fireside Chats was taken when we were trying to take, <laughs> make our name. <laughs> um, you can also send us an email directly if your thoughts, you would like to keep them either private or just at least not on social media, firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Uh, we encourage you to check out our social media. Obviously, we like engagement. We like having people to discuss things with. We try to be active on our social media. We're just busy working adults and sometimes yeah. you know the best laid plans and all of that um but i think we got some posts lined up for this week very excited we do and then if you really like what we're doing here if we made you laugh if we made you cry if we made you feel any sort of emotion after your heart got shriveled up in 2020 from everything involved in the pandemic then leave us a review on your listening platform of choice you can find a link on our social media to guide you through how to leave a review it's uh, on our link tree check it out it's also in oh. the episode description every week also in the episode description every week uh, which you can find at firesidebreakdowns.com is that do we have that domain yet i don't think we have that quite yet no we don't yet no, but it uh, it gets uploaded it's, to pretty much every platform so if yeah. your platform gives you a little blurb telling you what the episode's about you'll oh, find yeah, the just link. click the link in the platform brilliant yeah and then oh the one thing we don't we haven't been great at mentioning it every week if you have any questions something oh, yeah. that you would like us to address send it to us we will gladly do that we've got some uh listener requests coming down the pipe that we're going to address um we love doing those because we like to know where you guys are at and what you want to know because that means we're providing you something specifically that you want. And you don't just have to play the lottery every week and hope that we covered something that you're interested in. So. Exactly. On that right, note, well, what's the good news, Robin? So I got some good news. At least I feel like it's good news. And it is not directly related to the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, we do try to tie good news into our episodes. But it does relate back to our very recent episode on the minimum wage. Hmm. Yes. Chief officers at several national restaurant chains have communicated to their investors this week that an increase in the minimum wage would not 
likely have a significant impact on the well-being of their chains, the financial well-being of those businesses. In fact, the CFO of Denny's has actually indicated that um, an increased minimum wage for their workers in California, which is ahead of the game as far as minimum wage requirements, has actually translated into improved customer traffic. That's what they're saying. Basically more people, more butts in seats because they're paying their workers more. So this is a great indicator for those who are championing this uh, fight for 15, this increase to minimum wage. If you would like to know more about the controversy surrounding this whole minimum wage debacle, we do have an episode for you. That is super good news. You know what it made me think of that we didn't talk about in our minimum wage episode? And I think we might have to dedicate a whole episode to. What didn't we talk about? computerized labor self-checkouts and the like interesting there's that argument that an increased minimum wage will lead to the workforce diminishing and being replaced with computers fun story very very interesting topic especially because spoiler alert it's already happening yeah it is Um, For April Fool's Day for our company newsletter, we actually worked on a joke that was um, basically trying to convince the company that the entire newspaper staff had been replaced by AI content generators, which are actually things that are out there on the Internet that you can start a paragraph and let it write you an article. Um, So, yeah, we should totally talk about that. Yeah, we should totally talk talk about that. that. Look at there. I'm a listener to our show and I just made a request. See how easy it is? <laughs> that's that's everything for this week. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. We will be back uh, in your ears in one week. Until that time, everybody take care of each other. <laughs>